appreciate it. Yeah. All right, how are we doing this morning? Good, good. Good to be with you. Thanks for inviting me out. Bart, it's great to see you again. And uh, appreciate uh, getting to know Steve over the years and just hanging out with him. And we were hanging out just uh, earlier this year in Kansas City. We were at a Nine Marks conference uh, there at the seminary and got reacquainted. And it's just a joy to be with you guys this morning. I'm uh, happy I got my wife with me, Lisa. So you'll get to talk to her as well. We'd love to interact with you kind of between sessions and at lunch. It's a great uh, time to be together. Uh, How many of you guys are from this church. You're right here at Grace Bible Church, the majority. And then how many of you are from another church? You're kind of from a different place coming in. Okay, good. Well, we're glad you're here. Thanks so much for coming and driving over and uh, being a part of the conference uh, today. It's a one-day conference, so we have a lot uh, of things that we want to cover and look at, but it's just a real honor and a joy to be with you. You know, I, I, uh, I enjoyed working in open heart surgery. It was a lot of fun. My, my job was to open up the leg and take out the greater saphness vein. That's a conduit that that vein we use as a conduit to do the bypass surgeries on the heart. And as I was doing that for about four years, as Steve had mentioned, I just started sensing a desire to work on the inner man, not just the outer man. And I heard a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, I got tired. He used to be a medical doctor and then a preacher in London, right? And he said, I got tired of helping people live longer where they send more. And I wanted to help people live forever where they never sin again. And when I heard that quote, I'm like, that's it. That's, that's exactly what I'm sensing. You know, I'm tired of just kind of working on the body. I want to help work on the heart. And it's got to be God, the Holy Spirit, through his word, right, to bring a heart out of darkness into light. But that switch happened for me in around uh, year 2002, and that's when I went to seminary. But, you know, Lisa and I, we've been married about uh, 19 years. We'll be going on 20 uh, on May the 1st. That's our anniversary date. I picked an easy date so I could never forget it. May the 1st, May the 1st. So uh, that's the date for us. And I thought as we kind of work through our sessions. We've got four different sessions that we'll be looking at on marriage, and I would just tell you a little bit about our story. That way you can kind of get to know us a little bit, and a few things in our story I'll elaborate on, maybe by way of illustration as we move through our material. But uh, so we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 6. We'll start off with that, and then verse 7. But as you turn to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, I'll tell you just a little bit uh, about how we met. How's that? I'll tell you a little bit about how Lisa and I met. So I'm from Georgia originally, moved out to go to seminary and to Los Angeles. I'm there at Grace Church, and um, there was, uh, you know, like a thousand kids almost in our college ministry. And so basically there was this event where uh, we had a a social event one night called Dinner and a Movie. And so the idea would be that all of the different Bible studies would film a funny video. We would watch the videos and vote on who had the funniest video. So it was just like a social event, but the college pastor said, hey, this is a great thing to bring a date to. It's a great opportunity to bring a date to this thing. So at that event, dinner and a movie, I went with my whole Bible study as friends, and then Lisa went as a date with someone else. And so halfway through this event, my friend, Jeremiah, he's a seminary student, and I were talking, and he's, Jeremiah asked me, he said, hey, Adam, did you bring a date? And I said, no, I'm just kind of here with the Bible study. How about you? Did you bring a date? And he's like, yeah. I said, who did you bring? He's like, I brought Lisa Sihusen. And I said, who is that? And he's like, oh, she's this girl in our college ministry. If you saw her, I think you could recognize her. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, and then the, the lights start to dim. I go sit back with my Bible study. He goes back to sit with his date. And I want to see who his date is. So as I'm walking back, you know, to my Bible study, I'm kind of looking back. And I'm like, oh, that's that girl. That's Lisa. That's the girl I've been like thinking about asking out. But you know what? If you snooze, you lose. And now I got another seminary student asking her out. And I'm like, oh, man. So for like the second half of this event, I'm like kicking myself. And then as that event ended that night, I walked straight up to Jeremiah. And I said, hey, Jeremiah, uh, it's good to, good to see you. I'm glad, you know, that you're here tonight. And I looked at Lisa and I'm like, well, hello. What's your name? You know, and I kind of start talking to Lisa for a minute. I felt kind of bad about it, but not too bad not to talk to her. So I, I start talking to her for a minute. And in God's providence, some guy comes over, says, Jeremiah, I have a really deep theological question I need to ask you. And I was like, thank you, Lord. Thank you. 
So Jeremiah steps over in seminary mode to answer this guy's theological question. And then Lisa and I were just like kind of kept talking, you know, like, hey, you went to master's. Tell me about what you're doing, you know. And we were just trying to get to, I, I was just being friendly, you know, uh, but maybe, maybe a little bit too friendly. But, you know, it kind of felt weird because there was some chemistry. But all of a sudden, Jeremiah comes back from his theological conversation. And, uh, and I'm like, all right, you, well, you guys have a good night, Jeremiah. Good to see you again. Lisa, call me. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. I didn't say that. I thought, I thought about it, but I, I couldn't do that, right? So, uh, so they leave. I'm cleaning up because I'm an intern at the church, and I'm like sweeping the floor, and it's late at night, and it feels like, you know, like this always, it, all the good things always happen for somebody else. You know, if you're not married or dating, you're like, everybody else is finding somebody, and I'm still single. At this point, I'm 28 years old. And so I'm like sweeping the floor, and I'm just like, man, I wish it would happen to me sometime, but it just it just wasn't happening. So I'm just like, I got to give this up to the Lord. And uh, so the next day, I'm looking for Lisa at church. We're at Grace Communities, kind of a big church, as you know. So uh, I didn't see her anywhere, but I saw this girl named Karen, who I knew knew Lisa pretty well. They were in the same Bible study. So I go up to Karen and say, hey, Karen, um, tell me a little bit about Lisa. And she's like, well, what do you want to know? And I said, well, first of all, she was there last night with Jeremiah. And Karen looked at me and said, oh, she don't like Jeremiah. I said, well, how do you know that? And she's like, Adam, I'm a girl. Trust me, I know. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. I'm like, so what are you saying? And she said to me, Karen said, well, I think she might have Georgia on her mind. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, I'm like how do you, you know, what do you think about Lisa? Is she like, is she a solid Christian? She's in your Bible study. Like, what do you know about her character? You know, I'm just kind of interested. And she's like, oh, she's a godly girl. She's been to Uganda on a mission trip. She just wants to serve the Lord. She meets girls from our Bible study. She's joyful. She, I, I, I got it. I got it. I got it. That sounds awesome. And she's like, you should ask her out. And I started thinking about it, and I'm like, well, I can't do that to my friend, Jeremiah, right? I mean, they were just on a date last night. So the next day, I go to work. I'm working as a physician's assistant, this time in family practice there in Los Angeles. And, and all the girls at, at the work, place where I work were trying to set me up with their friends, but they're not believers. So I'd always say, no, no, thank you. No, I'm not interested, you know. And uh, so that day at work on Monday, uh, they were like, well, how did your thing go at church? Because I told them about what was happening that weekend. And I said, oh, it went really well. I think I met somebody. And all the girls at work, the nurses there at the doctor's office were like, what? You met somebody? Are you going to ask her out? And I'm like, well, I can't. And they were like, well, why not? And I'm like, well, she was there with a friend of mine last night. She was there with Jeremiah. And they were like, oh, it don't matter. It don't matter. If you like this girl, you got to ask her out. And I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, I can't do that. So on the way home from work, I'm thinking, should I ask her out? Should I not? So I called her Bible study shepherd, the Bible study leader. And uh, he's, he's a friend of mine. This wasn't Jeremiah, but another guy. And I said, hey, uh, I'm just calling to check in. What do you think about Lisa? And, and he, he, same thing. He's like, godly girl. She's great. Her and Jeremiah are just friends. If you want to ask her out, you should. Here's her number. And, uh, and then I, I kept, he gave, me, I, I, he gave me the number. I asked for it. I said, well, hey, in that case, can I have her number? He said, yeah. And he gave me the number. And I'm driving home. And I just keep thinking, like, should I call her? Should I not? What should I do? And you'll have to wait to the next session to hear about what happened, all right? Next session, I'll tell you what happened. That's how we met. Next session, I'll tell you about our first date. But for right now, we're digging in, all right? You're in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And the title of this particular session is The Beauty of Submission. The Beauty of Submission. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says this. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be together this morning. Help us to look at this passage today and to see the beauty of submission. This is your design, marriage is, and our roles and responsibilities are to be a picture of Christ and his love for the church. And so I just pray you'd be with us today. I pray for every couple that's here today that you would encourage them from the scripture of how we could be uh, honoring you in our uh, marriages. God, we pray that you would be exalted in our hearts, that we would worship you with all that we are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the books that was uh, just given out this morning was Dave Harvey's book, When Sinners Say I Do. That's one of my favorite uh, books on marriage. And in that book, he tells a story about a backwoods family who made their way to the big city for the first time. And walking the streets, they were mesmerized by the skyscrapers, and the family followed this crowd through some strange, slowly spinning glass doors into this huge indoor area. And there, the mother and the daughter uh, stopped to marvel at the two gliding silver staircases that crisscrossed each other and were going up and down automatically. The father and the son move a little further into the building, and in a few moments, they're standing in front of a large wall filled with several pairs of shiny metal doors. And they were lighted up with buttons on either side of the doors. And so they gaze at some of the blinking numbers above the doors. And, and in that moment, a, a bedraggled old woman with a red shopping bag who looked exhausted and stooped over approaches the set of doors nearest them. And as if by magic, the doors slide apart, revealing a small, empty, wood-paneled room. The woman steps in, and the doors slide closed behind her, and the father and son stand there transfixed. What's happening in there? Why would she want to go into such a tiny room? And after a minute or so, the doors magically open again, and out steps a beautiful, energetic woman who brushes past them with a red shopping bag in hand. And without taking his eyes off the elevator, the father leans down and he whispers to his boy, he said, son, go get your mother. (laughs) Now, don't misunderstand the illustration, all right? It's It's funny, but it helps communicate an important point. I like this story because it speaks to the common tendency that we all have is we just want to quickly fix our marriage. And we think we can fix our marriages by supposedly fixing our spouse. There is a a time in marriage where you will need to learn to help each other and confront each other. But right now, we're just kind of focusing on God calling us to be a husband and a wife that would honor Him. And being a husband and a wife, as you know, is a great blessing, but it can also at times be a challenge. And to fix our marriages or to help grow in our marriages, God's given us His Word, right? And His Word takes, play, takes, a, takes its effect on our hearts over time. And what I'm trying to say with that illustration is there's not like a room you can step into and then come out being the perfect husband or the perfect wife. And, and, and it's not like God just, just does that, you know, like this. I mean, he can save us in the twinkling of an eye, right? In a second, he can save us. But sanctification is a process. It's an ongoing process. And we are all a work in process. And for our marriages to, to, to have an extreme makeover, it takes hard work. And it can only be done as you discover how the gospel transforms your heart. And then it's the gospel that transforms our relationships so that our marriages actually look like Christ and the church. Now, let me just say this. We're in 1 Peter as we're tackling this first subject today of the beauty of submission. And this book of 1 Peter and this passage in particular is about the role of a godly wife. But it's also about hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In this text, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, is addressing two things that wives have a tendency to put their hope in. So let me just share that broadly, and then we'll get into the PowerPoint, and I'll give you some specifics. But just big picture, two things that wives tend to put their hope in, according to this passage, wives, and all women, I would say for that matter, have a tendency to put their hope in their beauty. There's just a tendency, and it's natural for a woman to want to look good, and want to be seen as being beautiful, 
And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm thankful that women want to look good, that my wife wants to to be beautiful because that means that she's going to, you know, have some degree of focus on that. But the problem is sometimes women put too much hope in that and too much focus on that. And so that can be a problem. That's what this text is addressing. The second thing this text addresses is that women, if they don't put their hope in their beauty, then they tend to put their hope in their words and their ability to persuade men their husbands in particular, and they think that if their beauty doesn't influence their husband to get what they want out of their relationship, then maybe their words will be what is used by them in order to influence their husbands and get what they want out of their relationship. And we have to be very careful and very on guard because these two things, beauty and our words, are exactly what's being addressed in this passage where Peter's saying, don't put your hope in your external beauty And be careful how you use your words because Peter points us somewhere else. He points us in a different direction entirely. And so what I want to do is share with you where I think his focus is in the passage. And I'm going to give you three areas of where wives should put their hope. If they shouldn't put their hope in their beauty or in their words, then where should they put their hope? Three areas where a wife should put her hope. Number one, hope is not found in your words, but it's found in your conduct. According to this passage, our hope ultimately is not, you know, it's going to be in Christ, but in the, for the sake of marriage, it's not placed in the words that you use, but in the conduct of your life. And we're looking at that out of verses 1 and 2, where again it says, likewise, wives must be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so again, First Peter, we're being challenged with the truth that if we want to broadcast the glory of God with our lives, we must do so by living out a testimony that points others to Jesus. And in the context of marriage, it looks like a wife putting her hope in God and in his design for what marriage ought to look like. And in this passage, that's by submitting to your husband. That's what the text is talking about. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband. Now, it's not like God here is just somehow picking on wives. And he's like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the word submission and stamp it on what a wife should be. And that settles it. Notice he's building something because he says likewise. So that connects us with part of the theme of 1 Peter because 1 Peter is all about submitting. It's all about suffering. It's all about finding hope in God. It's all about broadcasting the glory of God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. And in First Peter, there's actually three clear areas where Christians must submit to those who are in authority over them for the glory of God to be on display. Number one, this is just, you don't have to write everything I'm saying. I don't think this is in the notes, but uh, number one, the citizens in First Peter were to submit to the government. Right? Remember, we're writing to the church, probably in Rome, being persecuted, Nero, other things are going on in the first century. But if you glance back at chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So he's basically telling the church, you got to submit to the government. And it's not like the government was really Christian or even Republican. Right? This is an awful, liberal, God-forsaken government for Rome. It's a pagan culture. And yet, God tells the church, you got to submit to those over you. If you skip down to verse 18 of chapter 2, we then read about how servants must submit to their masters. In verse 18, it says, uh, servants, be subjective to your masters. Right? And it goes on to talk about even if your master is unreasonable, you still got to submit to them because if a servant or a slave submits to their master, they can broadcast the glory of God in a way that maybe that unsaved master will see Christ in you. That's exactly what this passage is talking about. And so, in chapter 3, when he says, likewise, or if you're reading from an NASB this morning, it says, in the same way. So there's the connection. In the same way that citizens submit to the government, in the same way that slaves submit to their master, in that same way, wives, God's saying through his word, the pen of the apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he said, hey, wives, you also need to submit. And you need to submit to your husband because this is God's design. 
And we're going to find out, even if the husband's not saved, which is the context of this passage, you can influence your husband, who's your authority, by living out a gospel-centered lifestyle of submission under him. And by the way, the Bible gives us other areas where this also should happen. Outside of 1 Peter, children should submit to their parents as unto the Lord. As you know, Ephesians 6.1, and then uh, church members must submit to their elders. Hebrews 13.17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. So the Bible's full of, here's authority, here's those under authority, those under authority need to submit to those over authority. And all of this can be done really by also evaluating Christ's example. And Christ's example is also beautifully written for us in 1 Peter 2.21, where it says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And then what comes next? He talks about Jesus going to the cross. While he was reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Why am I emphasizing that? Christ submitted to the will of the Father. Christ was more than willing to volitionally go to the cross to be our sin substitute, that we could have relationship with God. And if Christ was willing to submit as the second person of the Trinity to the Father's plan, I mean, what did Jesus say throughout his whole ministry? I'm not here to do my, my will, but my Father's will. Whatever the Father wants done, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to submit to and fulfill the Father's will. And this is yet another example that we have in Scripture of like submission is a a beautiful thing. That's why I gave the title, The Beauty of Submission, because you know what most wives in the church think when they hear the word submission? They think, oh, I kind of get that shiver up their spine. And they're like, oh, I got to submit. Oh, I I, I mean, I'm going to submit because the Bible says it, but I don't like it very much. I don't really like this submission thing. I mean, certainly that's where the culture is. And if we're not careful, it creeps into the church because it is a hard thing to do, right? It is difficult to submit, and in this case, to an unbelieving husband. I mean, that was really difficult in the first century. You know, it would be one thing if the husband came to Christ first because he could kind of lead his family. But in the first century, if the wife came to Christ, but the husband didn't and she's not the leader, how is she supposed to influence her family, you know, or her, her husband to maybe see Christ as she now has come to Christ? Because that's the context, right? She's now a believer. How do I help my husband? Now, you might be here and you have a believing husband. And if so, praise the Lord for that, right? But you still have opportunities to encourage him and to submit to him in a way that would um, honor the Lord and in a way that would be helpful for him. And, and you might be here again and say, Adam, you don't understand. My husband's really tough. He's really hard. And it's like, well, that, that's why these passages are here. Citizens submit to the government. Slaves submit to their masters. Jesus submitted to the Father's will. Likewise, it says that a wife is to submit to her husband. And so we're saying here that by the conduct of submission, that very act of obedience to the Lord is what God might use you know, sovereignly, he does what he does, how he does it, but he might choose to use that act of obedience to bring your husband to Christ, or if your husband's already a Christian, to bring him into more faithful obedience to Christ. The word for submission here, the word is the word hupatasso, and it's in the present tense, and it literally means to come up under, to come up under that that beauty of what God's doing, and it's also uh, the word emphasizes a volitional decision meaning that you want to, like Christ wanted to submit to the Father's will, that as a godly wife growing in Christ's likeness, this becomes part of what you want to do. You know, I said sometimes our neck, the hair on the back of our neck bristles when we hear submission. That would be if you're operating in the flesh. But if you're operating in the Spirit, then you would be like, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that for the glory of God. And as an example of, of our marriage would point people to Christ in the church, I, I want to do that. And yet we know it can, be, it can be difficult, right? I mean, that's part of the curse. Part of what the curse is is not only pain in childbirth, but if you remember from Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Sorry about that, ladies. I know that could be tough. I mean, for Lisa, I remember our first baby, uh, she was like, hey, I, I don't want to get an epidural. I want to just have it all naturally. And I'm like, well, why do you want to do that? 
And she said, just because I want to. And I'm like, okay, baby, let's do it. It was a horrible experience. You know? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I mean, it was exciting, but it was like, oh, my goodness, that was a lot of, uh, of, of challenging. You know, that was, a, that, was a, that was an interesting night. You know, so the next baby that came along, she's like, okay, I did my one childbirth. I think this time I'll have an epidural. And I said, thank God. You know, thank goodness. And so we're sitting there. We're, like, playing cards. You know, we're hanging out. And uh, the baby's, like, head is crowning, you know. And I'm like, uh, honey, the baby's head is crowning. She's like, what? Oh, that's good. Here, your turn. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like man, we should have done this all along. So, uh, you know, so that was one of the curses, childbearing, uh, pain in childbearing. Okay. The second part of the curse was, it says in Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's just simply saying, hey, ladies, you, you're going to want to be in charge. You're going to want to have the desire to, to do things the way you want to do that. But the, God's placed a husband over you, and it's kind of inferred in that passage by different factors that make it sound like, and sometimes the husband's going to rule over you with a strong fist, but that's just the way it is. And, and I'm challenging husbands next session to not be that tyrant, right, that, that demanding husband, but be a loving servant. But sometimes a wife's going to have to submit to her husband, and he's going to rule over them, and that's a tough thing. So wives are called to, to be submissive, though, because it brings glory to God. And notice it says in verse 1 again, to be submissive to who? Who does it say? You're to be submissive to who? It says to your own husbands. It doesn't say you got to submit to every husband. Someone say, thank God. Thank God it's just this one man. Just this one man that I have to submit to because sometimes wives get that feeling of like, oh, well, I have to submit to men in general. The Bible never says that. It never says women submit to men. It says wives submit to your own husband. I remember in counseling early on when I was back in Texas, this one uh, couple was, and this wife was saying she was having trouble submitting to her husband and submitting to this guy and this guy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, you know, I have to submit to men. And I'm like, no, you don't. You submit to this one guy and only him. And you tell those other guys, back off. I ain't submitting to you. You know, because this, the Bible is not chauvinistic. Right? We, we understand the Bible develops a beautiful uh, role in marriage for the wife and a husband, but you submit to your own husband. And then notice it says also in verse 3, uh, sorry, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, be subject to your own husband so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won by the conduct of their wife. So it's this conduct of submission that God uses. It could be a temptation for you not to submit, but God, ladies, this is what, wives, this is what God's called you to. This is your role and your responsibility, and you don't want to be that lady who's not submitting, right? I mean, you're, you're probably familiar with the Proverbs that talks about the danger of living with a contentious woman. You know, Proverbs 21, 9, it's better to live on the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Uh, no husband appreciates, and I would say is really changed by, um, by a quarrelsome wife. Right? You, you know the stories of the wife who keeps nagging her husband, nagging her husband, nagging her husband. How's that work out? Does the husband finally do whatever the wife wanted him to do in a God-honoring way? Or is it more like, hey, I'm sick and tired of hearing about it. I guess I'll just do what she wants because if I don't, I'll never stop hearing about it. Right? So we understand that there's, there, there, we want to, uh, as wives, submit to our husbands. And we want to do so in a way that would honor the Lord and that would, that would, uh, that would be a beautiful thing. And let me just clarify as we're talking about it. I'm not talking about some type of abuse. If there's ever any type of physical abuse where a husband was beating a wife or in any way physically abusing his wife, you don't have to submit to that. Can I just be really clear about that? Nobody in the church is saying that a wife should submit to her husband if she's being physically abused. I'll go a step further. If she's being verbally abused in the sense where the husband is constantly cussing her out and calling her names, which we have also faced in counseling, unfortunately, more than once, she doesn't have to submit to that. You know, I read a story one time about a husband who was so upset at his wife that if she didn't have the dinner ready and the food was hot, he would take the dinner plate, put it on the floor, and make his wife get down and eat it out of, a, out of the dog dish. 
Is that not disgusting? I'm sorry to even bring that mental picture up to you, but I would be like, in a situation like that, we would, we would come in and rescue that wife. We would say, hey, you, for right now, we're going to separate. We're going to work through this and figure this out for, for the time being so that we can help you. I'm just saying to you, wives, don't feel like somehow you're under the thumb of your husband in a way that if there's ongoing unrepentant sin, that we wouldn't somehow work with you to address it. So we want to address those issues. You know, we're, we're mandated reporters, which means if there is physical abuse, we're going to report that to the authorities. That's what God's called us to do. Do. But we're also going to get involved as an elder team and help provide care for this family to work through this situation. If it's verbal abuse, again, that one gets a little bit more tricky because it's like, to what degree? You know, to what degree? Because, you know, some wives could be like, well, my husband yelled at me, so I'm leaving him. I'm like, well, time out, time out. It's not, not, don't, don't pull the trigger that quick, but let us get involved and help think through what's going on. And, and that's like, you know, maybe a whole nother series that we could talk about that. But, but I love coming back to normal marriage and healthy marriage that can still be somewhat of a struggle. I, I like that, that my wife and I learn to just work on it. You know, when we talk about submission, it's something that I try not to just say to her, or I certainly wouldn't say, though my wife reminds me when I was newlywed, I would say at times, hey, honey, you just need to submit. That, that was a young husband saying that. You know, hey, honey, you just need to submit. You know, as we grow in our marriages, right, Bart? Hopefully, you're not saying that to your wife. I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm saying, oh, you just got to submit, you know. But as you're growing, you're learning to be more uh, tactful, more endearing, more patient. And, 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 uh, and I'm saying that, you know, while, while I wouldn't maybe say those words today, it is an understanding that wives, maybe just coming back to the wife's responsibility, be subject to your own husbands. Please note it doesn't say um, if you want to. Right? It doesn't say submit to them if you want to. It's in, understood here that you submit to him in what? In everything. That's the idea, that you would submit to your husband in everything other than I've already given you some disclaimers of where you shouldn't submit if, if there's abuse. But other than that, if it's talking about the budget or the family vacation or this. Now, again, the husband would have to be a fool to demand his way in all of those areas, so what Lisa and I will try to do is sit down and talk about it, and then we, we pray about it, and we do our best to make that decision together in a way that honors the Lord, and that I can defer to her, and she can submit to me when, when it's appropriate. I mean, I remember early in our marriage, I was working as a youth pastor in Texas, and we had set a budget, you know, like a financial budget, and one of our uh, budget items was we could only spend 25 bucks on a personal issue. So if I wanted to go buy something, I got 25 bucks. If it's over 25, I got to call the wife and we got to talk about it and see if we're both in agreement and same with her. You know, if it's over 25, then we're going to talk about it. But up under 25, you can do what you want. So that was 25 bucks a month. That was, our, we, hey, come on, so you're living off a youth pastor's salary. That's just what it was, all right? So I remember this one day, I'm sitting there in my office and I'm working and Lisa calls me and she was like taking a walk in the neighborhood. She said, hey, Adam, guess what? I just found a yard sale in our neighborhood, and there's this pottery barn table for sale, and it's only like 200 bucks. Can we get it? Because we've been looking for a new table. And I'm like, oh, honey, that sounds great. Let me check. And I like check the budget. You know, I pull up the online banking statement and see right where we're at. And I'm like, uh, honey, I'm so sorry. We already spent your 25 bucks this month. Uh, you, can't, you can't buy it. She's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, honey, remember, we, we talked about our budget. We talked about how we're doing this. And she's like, but honey, it's a pottery barn table. Do you know how much that costs in the store? And I'm like, how much? And she said, that's like two grand. It's like $2,000. It's on sale for 200. It's brand new. They're just moving away and they, they, they're going to sell it for 200 bucks. I'm like, baby, I'm sorry. We can't do it. Right? We're committed, right? We're committed to Christ. We're committed to the local church. We got to be able to tithe. We're not going into debt. Like we, we talked about this, honey. We just can't do it. And she's like, oh, all right. So she hangs up. I hang up. And I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like, yeah, I stuck to my guns. You know, we're honoring the Lord with our finances. This is awesome. I love my wife. She calls back like five minutes later and she said, we got the table. <laughs> and I was like, What? And I was like, my blood started boiling. You know, I was just about to hang up and go home. And we're about to have a long talk about like, what is, what is, what's going on? And she said, your mama got it for us. You know, I didn't tell you my mom was there. They were taking a walk together. My mom heard the whole thing and said, oh, well, let, let us buy this for you. And wrote a check, bought the table. And my wife was like, I got you. 
I got you. I'm like, yeah, you got me, all right. But you know what? That would, that would have been a problem, right? If she would have just absolutely done that, I would have said in that moment, that would have been sinful. It would have been a sin for her if she hadn't done that, which she did not, right? But it would have been a sin. And guess what? It happens all the time. In marriages that we see at our church, it's all the time a wife saying, you know what? My husband's not being reasonable. I'm going to do whatever I want. I've been living under this long enough. And they just start doing things that are outside of what God's word says. So the Bible just clearly addresses this. And I hope that you'll see in this passage how beautiful it is. Let me move on. Another way to demonstrate our hope is in the Lord here is number two or B, uh, by the conduct of your reputation. The conduct of your reputation. Remember, hope is not found in our words, but our conduct. We want our conduct to be submissive, and we want our conduct to, to have a healthy reputation, in a sense. And it says here, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So a wife is to be respectful. That The word here is the word fear or reverence. It's the idea, first and foremost, for God to be in fear and respect and awe of God. But a wife also is to respect, be respectful and to be pure in her conduct. Ladies, God has called you to respect your husband to have a, a certain appreciation for the authority that God's given him over you and that you would respect him, if, at least respect the position that he's in. And you can respect your husband in lots of practical ways. You can respect your husband by, by not interrupting him when he's trying to tell a story. You can respect him by letting him lead even if you don't agree in a certain area. You can respect your husband by, by letting him drive the way he wants to drive. Come on. Come on, you know that's a big deal sometimes, right? Unless he's breaking the law, okay? If he's truly breaking the law, you call him out, ladies. You call him out. But other than that, other than that, you have to respect the fact that husbands and wives are different and they do things a little bit differently. You can respect your husband by, by remaining within the budget that you both have set. You can respect your husband by never talking bad about him in front of the kids or in front of others. And wives should be pursuing a, a respectful type conduct and also the end of verse 2, to be pure. Pure means to be chaste or to be holy or to be innocent. This is a behavior that is holy to God and as an example of a transformed life in front of her, in this context, in front of her unbelieving husband. You, you want to have an impact on your husband? Be a godly wife that obeys what God's word says about your role and responsibility and do so in such a way that will actually, in time, if God's at work, this will be what attracts your husband. This is actually what attracts your husband. I like what Wayne Grudem writes in his commentary on 1 Peter here. He says this, quote, The attractiveness of a wife's submissive behavior, even to an unbelieving husband, suggests that God has inscribed the rightness and beauty of role distinctions in marriage on the hearts of all mankind. So we just said, even for unbelievers, an unbelieving husband's attracted to a wife who's submissive, who's respectful, and who's pure. You know, if he sees a wife that's lying or cheating or stealing or doing whatever, that, that might not be an attraction. I mean, that's part of what attracted me to my wife. Not only was she gorgeous, hello, I mean, look at her. She's gorgeous. Sorry, baby. All right, uh, you know, but the idea is also is that she's godly. When we went out to talk, which I'll tell you about uh, next session, that was what got me is that the attraction to her love for Christ. And if you want to have an influence on your husbands, focus on putting your hope not in your looks and not in your outer appearance and not with the words that you would use, but rather put your hope in Christ by having words and conduct that match what every Christian wife ought to look like. Number two, a second area where a wife can put her hope. Number two, hope is not found in your external beauty. We've been discussing this, but here it is, but in your internal beauty. And we're looking at verses three and four. Don't let the adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Notice again, the text does not say, here's your next, next bullet point there. It says, don't let your hope be in that which is perishable. Don't let your hope be in that which is perishable. What is perishable? Our bodies are perishable, right? We go to the store and buy produce and we say, hey, put the perishables in the fridge so they don't spoil in this hot Kansas weekend of 92 degrees. I went ahead and looked at next weekend. It's like 62. Why, why can't we come on the 62-degree weekend? We're here on the 92-degree weekend. I'm just kidding. But, it, you know, it's like the perishables are things that will spoil. 
And the Bible says here that a wife is not to put her hope in the external, again, verse 3, which would be the braiding of hair or the putting on of jewelry or the clothing that you wear, right? And it talks about how the focus shouldn't be on that because that's perishable. Instead, the focus should be on the imperishable. Now, please don't misunderstand here. I mean, in the Greek-Roman culture, as in today's culture, many women did spend way too much focus on their outward appearance, and they would, uh, you know, do, do, do at times outlandish colors, braiding their hair elaborately, putting jewels in their, in their uh, hair, uh, wearing elegant clothing that was so expensive as a, as a status of a case of like, we're the rich people, you're not. And so that was getting out of control. And I think Peter is just reminding us, you know, it's important for, for, for your focus to be on the right thing, but it, he never forbids a woman wanting to look nice, right? I mean, we would say the text does not forbid uh, things, uh, you know, such as hair coloring or body massages or pedicures and manicures. You know, that, those are good things. I mean, sometimes I kind of wish that was in there. It saved me a lot of money. You know, that was in there. But no, I'm just kidding. But, you know, the idea is the text doesn't forbid working out or straightening your teeth or having white teeth or, or even having some types at times of cosmetic surgery. You know, it depends on each situation, what's going on in the heart. But the text doesn't prevent those things. It just is saying don't have a preoccupation with your external beauty above and against your internal beauty. You know, I would say, ladies, you should look your best, right? Take a bath. You know, brush your hair, put on some stuff that smells nice. You know, where I grew up, the pastor used to say, ladies, paint the barn. You know, that, that's just what they said down in the deep south, you know. But it's like, it's okay to be reminded to look your best, but that's not the ultimate focus. The ultimate focus is on the heart, right? It's always on the heart. First Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control. This is proper for a woman who professes godliness, that she would also have good works. And so I'm just saying there's a beauty here of your character, which is imperishable. Um, So let your hope be in that, right? Don't let it be in what is perishable. You see, be already. Let your hope be in what is imperishable. And part of what I'm stressing here is this word where it says that in God's sight, this is very precious, well, what's, what's precious? Imperishable beauty. Talking about the character of a woman. Uh, what else is precious? A gentle and quiet spirit. You know, this word gentle has the idea, again, of not being pushy or self-assertive or trying to be manipulative. It has the idea of a meek and humble attitude. To be quiet means to be still, to be tranquil, to be peaceful, And again, this is in a generalized sense. It's not saying women are to be seen and not heard. Right? Nowhere is the text saying, I mean, my wife is extremely vocal, very uh, fun to be with. She's very congenial, which means at times she can be really loud. And you know what? I like that about my wife. I'm attracted to that. But when she's quiet, the idea here is in the marital relationship, when you're working through issues, that's not a time to be loud or cantankerous, which she's not. She's just loud on like, you know, happy loud, you know what I'm saying? But the, the text being gentle and quiet, I, what I'm trying to say is don't let the, don't, don't confuse this to think, oh, I just have to be quiet all the time and just hold all of my emotions in and never say anything or let out a shout with glee. No, you be you, but in a marriage relationship, particularly when you're working through an issue, keep in mind that there's a place to be quiet and to listen and to talk and correspond. That's true for husbands as well. It's not like husbands can be cantankerous. They can't be, right? And, and then Peter says that this is what? End of verse 4, he says this is very precious. Now that is an outstanding word because that word precious is used in First Peter in ways that almost always point to the gospel. The word precious is used to describe your faith in 1 Peter 1, 7. It talks about the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold. That word precious is used to talk about the blood of Christ in 1 Peter 1, 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, the word precious is used to describe your Christian testimony in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, where it says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God is chosen and precious. That word precious is used to talk about Christ as the cornerstone of our faith, which is precious in 1 Peter 2, 6. It says, behold, 
behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, referring to Jesus, which is chosen and precious. So being precious here in the book of 1 Peter is almost always talking about the gospel, or it's talking about your faith, or it's talking about the blood of Christ. And what Peter is saying is connecting by choosing to use that word, and he's saying, wives, you never look more like Jesus than when you have respectful, pure, gentle, quiet conduct. You want to have a gospel influence on your husband? It's not by preaching at him all the time. It's by living it out. And as you live out this beauty of submission, your husband, it may be that God's using that example, your conduct and your kindness and your character to draw him in and to bring him into a place where he's like, hey, what happened to you? Not only that, but it's an opportunity to to broadcast the glory of God in evangelism. You know, you ever been hanging out with other ladies? Maybe some of them are Christians, maybe they're not. And you talk about marriage and some of the wives are complaining about their husbands and this and that and how tough it is. And then a godly wife will say, hey, you know what? I find it a joy for me to submit to my husband. And then the other wives will be like, what? What, what did you say? Oh, I find it a joy. I love Jesus so much. He saved me and he's given me a direction in our marriage. And it is an honor for me to submit to my husband. And I'm just telling you, those other women would be like, what are you talking about? And what you're going to be able to say is, I'm talking about, I've been transformed by the gospel. And I see this as a beautiful way for me to represent Christ. And I love my husband and I want to submit to him as unto the Lord. That's countercultural, but it's beautiful. And it's precious. And my heart, my desire for you is just to see what Scripture says about submission. It's beautiful. A third area where a wife could put her hope would be this. Number three, hope is not found in your fearful worry, but in your faithful obedience. And he gives us an example here in verses 5 and 6. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Again, this is a reminder. This has been the way it's always been. There's no such thing as a modern marriage. He's saying, this is the way the holy women of old used to do it. Case in point, as Sarah, verse 6, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, the reason I love this example, your next blank there, our next point says, look to godly women who have adorned themselves with hope in God, because there's a lot of them. The one that's mentioned here is Sarah. We could also look at Rebecca, and we could look at Rachel and other godly women of the Old Testament. You know, sometimes as a pastor, I like to talk about, think about heroes of the faith or maybe some of my favorite pastors. What would it like, be like to, to talk to John MacArthur or to talk to John Piper or to talk to, you know, who, whoever, Steve Lawson or whatever pastors you like hearing? And sometimes my wife will say, oh, I'd like to sit down and talk to Patricia. John, John's wife, John uh, MacArthur's wife. Or I'd like to talk to Noel, John Piper's wife. Well, you know, I might look at Abraham for my wife, Lisa. She might say, oh, I'd like to kind of look at Sarah. I want to look at some of the matriarchs of the faith and see how they did it. And that's what Peter is saying. Well, look to Sarah because Sarah got this. And she understood this so much so that she looked at her, her husband and called him Lord. Now, again, that was culturally appropriate. It meant master, but it does also mean headship. That the idea of like, oh, Abraham is like the leader of our family. Sarah understood that. And by the way, Abraham and Sarah did not have a perfect marriage. You know, he covered up some stuff and told some half-truths. And she laughed. And when the prophecy came in about having a son. And and they had to work through some stuff. But overall, God blessed that marriage. And she submitted to her husband. And she also called him Lord. And that was a beautiful thing. Your next blank there says, um, life, uh, excuse me, live a life of faith and obedience while trusting God for the outcome. You just be obedient to do what God's called you to do. And that, that's kind of what the end of verse 6 is saying. It says uh, that Sarah obeyed Abraham. That's another strong word, right? Sometimes people are like, okay, I can use the word submit, but I don't like using the word obey. Well, it's both biblical. Submit to and obey your husband as unto the Lord. See it a good, as a good thing inspired by the Holy Spirit as a descriptor of how our roles should be as godly husbands, godly wives. And then it says, live with your, uh, excuse me, it says, uh, calling him Lord. You don't have to do that one, okay? <laughs> you, have to, you have to recognize that he's the headship, but you don't have to go around the house and say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Your servant listens, Lord. You know, it's, it's not like that, okay? But, and, you're, and you are her children. So he's saying, You're a disciple of Sarah, spiritual disciple of Sarah, if you do what she did 
And then it says at the very end, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Listen, a woman would be tempted to think that if I submit to and obey my husband in everything, I'm going to become a doormat and he's going to walk all over me. And he's going to now have his cake and eat it too and do whatever he wants because I'm going to have to be this submissive, obedient wife. And what God's word is saying here, don't fear anything. Just be faithful in everything. Do you get me? Don't fear anything. Be faithful in everything. And as you're faithful in obedience and submission, God's going to care for you and and to keep an eye on what's happening and actually use that example and that as a witness to be maybe the very thing that revolutionizes your marriage. You know, a lot of wives are like, man, well, I'm waiting on my husband to be a better leader. You know, if he would just lead us spiritually and be a better leader and recommend we pray together and do this, then we'd have a great marriage. How about you being a better follower? How about you being more apt to submission and obedience for the grace of God? And in that example, that would be a precious thing that God would use in your marriage. If you want to have influence, your influence doesn't come from your outer beauty or necessarily from your words, but it comes from your conduct, which is submissive and respectful and pure. And as you do that, don't be afraid to do that. Do what you do to the glory of God, and God will use it in an incredible way. Let me quote Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot says this, quote, Supreme authority in both church and home have been divinely vested in the male as the representative of Christ, who is the head of the church. It is in willing submission rather than grudging capitulation that the woman in the church, whether married or single, and the wife in the home find their fulfillment. Elizabeth Elliot saying, hey, ladies, do you find fulfillment? And just being obedient to God's word and to, to trust God with the results. Listen, Lisa and I don't do this perfectly. I know you don't do it perfectly, but at least we want to be encouraged this morning to grow in this area. So a couple of quick take-home application points. Number one, make sure you always find your ultimate hope in God and in the gospel. It's not going to be found in your marriage. It's not going to be found in the perfect mate. It's not going to be found in that being your entire focus. Your entire focus is ultimately on God and the gospel, met your hope and your delight and your joy be found in that. And as you do that, number two, make sure that you are focusing more on your internal beauty than the external beauty. Again, remember, women are really tempted to focus more on the body and on their words as a way they influence their husband instead of on their character of submission and respect and honoring the Lord by honoring their husbands in those ways. And then number three, make sure that you're pursuing godly women of the faith to learn from. You know, I get it. I'm a guy. I'm up here teaching. And you're like, well, he's a pastor. He's a male. He's saying all these things. Look, don't see it like that. This is God's word. And yet we have an example of, of, of uh, Sarah. We have 1 Timothy 2.2, women teaching younger women. Absolutely. If this is an area that's kind of rubbing you wrong a little bit and you need some help, find a godly woman. Ask her, hey, what does submission look like in your marriage? Help me get there because the Bible says it's precious and I've always seen it as a problem. Would you help me find how I could see and exercise my role as a godly wife, which would be precious in the sight of God? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, opportunity to look at 1 Peter 3. Pray that you be glorified in our time together as we work through a few more uh, places in the scripture and a few more topics that we're examining. Would you keep us humble? Help us to pursue the holiness of God and how we relate to each other. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.